Well, we're in Romans chapter 12, and we're going to be reading uh, starting in verse 4 this morning. Romans 12, starting in verse 4, and we'll read verses 4 through 8. Read along with me, Romans 12, verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's end this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Well, I had a friend who was a fairly fit man in his 50s, a fairly young man. I can say that now that I'm only a decade off. Then all of a sudden, he started to get ill, and he was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And as he learned about the disease, he discovered that a little organ about the length of his hand wasn't working properly. He had never thought of his pancreas until he had this disease. But it soon became a frequent topic of discussion in his home and with his doctors. And he quickly realized that he missed the good old well-functioning pancreas that helped him digest food for most of his life. Well, it's a pretty accurate picture of what can happen in a church. You see, your church is designed to function a certain way. And when you're actively serving in your church, uh, habitually speaking into each other's lives with grace and love, you're content with the status quo. But then, then a member gets ill, moves out of the area, or, or starts to walk in the way of worldliness, and you begin to notice a pain that things aren't functioning the way you, or the way they once did. Why? Why does this happen? Be, because we are said to be one body, one with each other. And when somebody feels pain or when somebody isn't functioning, God helps us all feel that same pain. That's the metaphor that Paul uses to describe a church. It's, it's a, a body, an interrelated body. And so read verse four and five with me. He says, for as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. And so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Now, to further the illustration a little, I, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we're going to see that when the less visible member you, you seldom consider, the, the one that you, you don't think about often experiences pain, rightly, Christians are to feel that member's pain as well, for again, we're a part of the same body, like my friend's pancreas. Look at 1 Corinthians 12 and read starting in verse 21. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. 
nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And so when your pancreas isn't working well, we should start to notice the change. That's his point. We're interrelated. We're a body. So with that metaphor in mind, go back to Romans chapter 12. And last week we considered the question, what are spiritual gifts? Today the focus is going to be, how do we use our spiritual gifts? And last week we, we learned gifts are not opportunities for individual expression. They, they aren't opportunities to find self-fulfillment. But spiritual gifts are always connected to the building up of Christ's body. They are for the good of your local church. And so we consider the definition from uh, our catechism, uh, Catechism for Christian Growth, what are spiritual gifts? And the answer is spiritual gifts are specific abilities given to the redeemed. They are specific abilities given to Christians. Sometimes they are might describe as natural abilities, and in some sense they are also supernaturally given. For the purpose, why are we given these gifts? For the purpose of building up the church, for, for spreading the gospel, for allowing the gospel to go forth, and then ministering to one another. So even though our gifts are specific abilities that we each uniquely possess, the goal of those gifts is always the good of the whole body. That's why we feel pain when members don't function properly. It's why Paul writes what he does in Romans 12, verse 6. Read with me. He says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Oh, I love that simple exhortation at the end, right? You all got gifts, let us use them. You may not understand what your gift is. You may feel weak and unsteady on your Christian feet, but God made you with the ability to love the body well. He made you to serve and to speak for the good of your body. That's the essential categorization of all the gifts that we see in the New Testament. You're either serving or you're speaking. There's serving type gifts and there's speaking type gifts. And every Christian is uniquely gifted with a blend of their serving gifts and a blend of their speaking gifts. And so a church functions best when every member is engaged for the good of the whole. So Paul simply says of our gifts, let's use them. Now today, as we consider the different gifts that Paul encourages us to use, let's remember that the best way to discover our giftedness is to look around your body, look around your local church, see where there's a need, and start 
to serve. Sometimes that, that comes with an official slot to serve in on some sort of monthly rotation, but, but often it doesn't. Often we use our gifts in natural ways, in conversations, in helping one another, by, by seeing and meeting needs. And so as we think together about how to use your spiritual gifts, I, I want you to ask seven questions to help you use your spiritual gifts well. We're going to have seven questions to help you use your spiritual gifts well. These questions help us think through Paul's list of spiritual gifts and how we might use each one of them. Now, as some of you feel inadequate in your gifting, I mean, many of you are in that point. I get it. I've been there. I feel inadequate often when I think of the tasks that I have before me. And when you feel inadequate and you're not quite ready to serve, let's not forget Paul's very simple encouragement. What does he say at the, in the middle of verse 6? Use your gifts. Start serving. Don't wait. So let's think carefully this morning about how God might want you to function in his body. I'm going to tell you this at the end, but, but as you go and think through this, jot down one, maybe two gifts that you want to grow in, that you think you should grow in, that you think you should exercise. And I also want you to tell someone in your life what those gifts are and what you're going to aim to grow in this next week, okay? So this is a sermon of all sermons that you need to learn to apply because this application is simple. Use your gifts. Well, the first question to consider this morning is, number one, does anyone still have the gift of prophecy? Does anyone still have the gift of prophecy? Now, to answer this question, we have to understand a little more about what exactly is meant by the word prophecy. The majority of what we read, for example, in the Old Testament prophets is not what we would traditionally call predictive of future events or predictive prophecy. It doesn't foretell what's going to happen. A bulk of the Old Testament prophecy that we see is strong calls from God that confront sin and, and help people change and help people grow. Some call this what you might call forth-telling, F-O-R-T-H, Forthtelling, whereas prophecy that predicts the future is, is foretelling, predicting what's going to happen in the future. It's similar to forthtelling, it's similar to what goes on in what you might say preaching, right? We're explaining and encouraging and exhorting and helping people understand God's word. So some think that prophecy in the modern day is really just essentially preaching. But is prophecy really what we do when we preach? Is prophecy essentially explaining the Bible? Well, the short answer is very rarely. So let me give you the first of three helpful points in understanding prophecy, okay? Point number one, prophecy is not the same as preaching. Prophets regularly wrote, thus says the Lord. Yahweh tells you. They gave words from God, even in their exhortations, even in their forthtelling. He said, this comes directly from God. A few times, like Daniel chapter 9, we see the prophets explaining previous scripture. But even that seems to be divinely inspired clarification. 
So the concept of prophecy does not include reliance on a biblical text to explain the Bible. Preaching, preaching always does. Good preaching is explaining the Bible. Prophecy, it's a new or direct revelation from God. And so a second clarifying point on prophecy, prophets received what we call spontaneous revelation. Prophets received spontaneous revelation. See, prophecy wasn't used to refer to the teaching ministry of the church. That's another gift. It's another component, teaching. It refers then to spontaneous messages directly from God. For example, 1 Corinthians 14, 6, Paul calls prophecy revelation. It's a revelation that doesn't come from studying the Bible. It comes directly from God. Later in that same chapter, Paul gives instruction on what to do in a church service when a prophet suddenly has a message from God, telling prophets that they are revealing the secrets of God. That's 1 Corinthians 14, 24, and 25. 1 Corinthians 14, 29, and 30. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that those who have the gift of prophecy are given mysteries from God. In Acts 11, Agabus receives a spontaneous prophecy. In 2 Peter 3.16, Peter says that Paul writes scripture comparing him to the Old Testament prophets. And so repeatedly in the New Testament, prophecy is spontaneous and sometimes a written revelation directly from God. If prophecy is words from God, then there's a third clarifying point about prophecy we see echoed throughout the Bible. Prophecy cannot be wrong. What happened in the Old Testament to a false prophet? They stoned him, right? They killed him, <laughs> okay? Um, if what I was doing was prophecy here, I'm gonna tell you that sometimes I'm wrong. And if I were a prophet, you all should have stoned me long ago. So, so preaching, comparing preaching to prophecy is, is a bit problematic when we look at the whole of scriptures. Look at verse six, for example. We're told, let us use our gifts, right? He says, let us use our gifts if prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now, now, what does it mean that the prophecy was to be in proportion to our faith? Perhaps it's individual faith, as only prophecy, you're only to say and prophesy what you believe is truly from God. But I think it's much more likely that our faith here is the gospel faith that we all believe in. For example, what is true, what is sound doctrine. That's why the uh, New American Standard, the Legacy Standard Bible, they, they translate this probably a little bit more literally here, prophecy, prophesy only in agreement with the faith, not our faith, with the faith. There's no R in the Greek. There's only the. And so if a prophet contradicts the standard gospel faith that we all believe or claims that an angel from heaven told him some new message, then we are to reject such a prophecy as false. Even so, if men are fallible and can make mistakes, why can't prophecies be false? Because God can't make mistakes and God gives these words to prophets. In prophecy, God speaks his words through men. And so if God speaks his words through men in prophecy, he's only gonna speak truth and there can't be false prophets or false prophecies. 
That's why it's so dangerous when even some of the most responsible charismatic churches talk about prophecy in the church today. They have to make room for prophets being wrong because frankly, it happens all the time. For example, this is a, a, a man that I, I, I love. I, I've profited from his uh, writings. His name is Sam Storms. He's a, a theologian. Uh, Wayne Grudem would hold something pretty similar to this. And, and they believe in something called fallible prophecy. This is what they say. Uh, Sam Storms writes, Accuracy in prophetic pronouncement is not really the most important aspect of the gift, but courage and obedience are. If a person steps out in faith and gives a prophecy or a word of knowledge that she believes God has given her and it turns out to be completely wrong, she nevertheless should be applauded raucously for her courage. God is not offended by our failure when we speak in his name and speak falsely. He is not more interested in prophetic accuracy than he is in our always practicing obedience. Let me ask you a question. Did the apostles mix error in their prophecies? Do we see error in the prophecies contained in the Bible, in the Old or the New Testament? No. I mean, just listen as I read 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7. It's clear how the prophets got their truths from God. Or you can turn there. It's just a couple of pages over. 1 Corinthians 2, 7. He says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Uh, go ahead and skip to verse 9. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. 1 John 4 instructs us to test the spirits for truth because if we are to trust prophetic words as if they are directly from god they must always then be true because god is true subjective guidance or strong impressions supposedly from god in the name of prophecy is a dangerous practice it can bind someone's conscience to a suggestion that may or may not be from god if you think you're a prophet and you come up and say, hey, God told me that you should be doing this. Maybe, maybe not. If it's found in scripture, okay, but not, I don't know. When such prophetic words are in error, it can cause people to doubt God in, in every way. And sadly, this encourages believers to look within to subjective feelings as guidance for what may or may not be true rather than God's revealed word. Look, these are dangerous things. And so it is much better for us to understand that prophecy, uh, along with tongues and healing, are part of the miraculous gifts that ceased with the apostolic age. I talked about that last week and, and did it a good amount. And so you can go back and listen if you have more questions about that. But question number one, does anyone still have the gift of prophecy? The, the short answer, the simple answer is no. We have the Bible which is our sufficient guide for all of life. All right, so let's continue with our next question, which will help us use gifts for the glory of God. Number two, are deacons the only ones deaconing? Are deacons the only ones deaconing? Yes, I made up the word deaconing. 
Sometimes we borrow words directly from other languages. For example, the Greek word for baptize is the word baptizo in Greek. Guess what? They just said, what's the Greek word? Let's going to make it an English word, okay? That's what transliterating uh, a word means, right? So if you were to translate the Greek word baptizo, it would mean literally to dunk, immerse fully into water. And think about how different things would be if we actually translated the word baptizo into English every time we found it in the Bible. You wouldn't have the practice of sprinkling babies with water or pouring water on people as baptism. You'd only have immersing believers in baptism because that's what literally the word baptizo means. So sometimes we have words in our language that get transliterated into English directly from another language. And deacons is another example of that word. The Greek word for deacon is diakonia. Same sounding word, right? But if we were to translate diakonia, that would mean service or to serve. So the church office of deacon then is most simply an official server or servant of the church. One who leads in serving, organizes serving, and is a chief server. But then our question comes, are deacons the only ones deaconing? Are official servants the only ones to be serving? The answer is clearly no. There's a gift of service given to almost everyone in the church, to basically everyone in the church. And so, so Paul writes, let us use our gifts, verse 7, if service in our serving. If it's to be deacon, in your deaconing. Not only is this a very specific gift, it's a whole category of gifts. It's a, it's a very broad word, and it to include a ton of ways to help others in your local body. The implication isn't, is that this isn't exactly a, a speaking gift, but a serving gift. This is doing things. It includes more official service like, like building maintenance, audio and video service, serving tables so we can enjoy fellowship, serving in the nursery or serving in children's ministry, security, greeters, home meal organizers, and many, many more. But service is broad enough to include actions that no one ever hears about, no one ever notices, like things you do for others in moments of need, like helping a brother move or helping him with his home projects because he has no idea what he's doing. Thank you for some of you who helped me. Like helping others watch their children or helping care for a family member's elderly parents and a thousand other ways that we can serve out of the limelight. So it certainly isn't deacons alone who are responsible for deaconing, for serving. All of us should be serving. So repeatedly in the New Testament, serving is something for the church. For example, Ephesians 4:12 tells us that pastors are to equip all the saints for the work of the ministry. That word ministry is service or diakonia. Pastors are to equip everybody in the church for service, for building up the body of Christ. You see, beloved, service is for every Christian, including those in leadership. 
Paul refers to himself as a, as a deacon in 1 Timothy 1.12. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service, to his deaconing. Apostles, elders, every church member is a servant. And so 1 Peter 4.10 is very clear. As each has received a gift, use it to serve, to deacon one another. So in essence, even if you are a leader and use a lot of your speaking gifts and think, think you're kind of uh, pretty important, or if you feel like you're the opposite and you're completely unimportant and, you, and you, you're kind of just kind of a, a fly on the wall, you're, you're, you're really new and a new member of the church, you're not quite sure what to do, you might be the back row Baptist, you know, the one who comes in late, leaves early, does all that sort of thing, right? If you're not sure if you can do anything except for show up at church, and even that's hard, everyone has a gift of serving in Christ's body. You just got to look for opportunities. If there are holes in official service opportunities, we try to let you know, and so please step up and, and start to fill them. It's why we let you know about our kitchen remodel plans earlier, right? We hope many of you can set aside some time, maybe take a day or two off work if you have those building improvement skills and come and help us so that you can serve the church in this important way in the beginning of March. But also get to know people. See how you can serve them individually. A pastor once told me that he didn't feel the need to participate in his work days at church because he had more important things to do. I remember thinking immediately as he said that, like, how sad. Pastors are chief servants everyone should jump to serve our body deacons aren't the only ones deaconing so let's use our gift of service let's think about how we can use it third question to help you use your gifts well how do i know if i have the gift of teaching question number three how do i know if i have the gift of teaching those who like to teach also tend to be those who think they're always right. This is a dangerous combination. Arrogance with a gift. And so Paul rightly warns Timothy, pastors must not be a recent convert, 1 Timothy 3.6. And don't be hasty to lay on hands and approve a young brother's teaching ministry, 1 Timothy 5.22. He has those statements along with a statement to Timothy, don't let anyone despise you for your youth. Right, so we got to kind of take those things in tandem. It is good for young men who think that they should be teaching more to serve in many different ways. This includes learning to flex your service muscles a bit more, but it also means learning to teach in some of the less showy ways, like teaching in children's ministry. I mean, nothing is more humbling than teaching three- and four-year-olds. I mean, it's, it's great. I love it, but it's hard. Maybe it's starting an outreach Bible study with, with a few neighbors. Maybe it's doing things with, with small groups of people and saying, you know what? I don't have an official teaching responsibility, but I love teaching the Bible. I love thinking about the Bible. Let's just get a few people together and let's do this. Let's study the Bible. If you have the gift of teaching, you'll start to see God using you in whatever platform that you're teaching. And so Paul writes very clearly in verse 7, doesn't he? Let us use our gifts, verse 7, the one who teaches in his teaching. 
The gift of teaching here is the speaking category of gifts, right? Where you help others learn and apply truths about God. How do you know if you have this gift? Well, first off, you have to have a desire to teach. Unlike the gift of service, which is for everyone, teaching in a larger public setting is not for everyone. Some of you are like, oof. So desire, a willingness to try and fulfill a teaching spot is a good start to determine that, you know what, maybe you have this gift of teaching. Well, second way to determine if you have this gift of teaching is, is by fruit that you might see in your life. Very simply, are people encouraged and growing because of your teaching ministry? Are you asked to teach again? And please get honest feedback. Some of the hardest things to do are to help a brother who has been maybe teaching for a very long time understand that he doesn't have the gift of teaching. Get some honest feedback. Third, a way to see if you have the gift of teaching you love to study God's word. Because if you're going to teach people, you have to have content to teach people. Therefore, you have to enjoy studying the Bible. One of uh, uh, my former pastors once said, God doesn't give the gift of teaching without the discipline to study well. God doesn't give the gift of teaching without the discipline to study well. That's important. A lot of people, a lot of pastors, can entertain us. A lot of people who get up and and talk for a living are good at telling stories. They're even good at drawing out our emotions, but some of the most engaging communicators aren't particularly good teachers, frankly, because they don't like to study. So who has this gift? Well, we know that elders must have this gift. It's literally a qualification for every elder to be able to teach. But so do many others, Sunday school teachers, Bible study leaders, women's ministry teachers, uh, children's ministry teachers, care group leaders, and some of you who've never done any of these things before have the gift of teaching. Uh, One of our faithful uh, ladies Bible study leaders has told me a few times now that she couldn't imagine teaching when she was younger. 30 years ago, this would never have been on her radar, and now she, she loves it. See, sometimes a teaching gift takes time to develop. Sometimes it takes a hard work, a love for God's word, and an obvious need, and you say, you know what, I'll try it out. And you need a little bit of a help, of a push to discover that you actually have a gift of teaching. So the next question to help you use your gifts well, number four, is my exhortation encouraging? Is my exhortation encouraging? Now, some people act like they have the gift of exhortation, but what they don't realize is that they're the type of person that as soon as someone sees them coming, that person turns the other way and tries to run away from them. I think you've maybe encountered people like that. I even heard a a gentleman say who thought he had the gift of exhortation that he had the gift of confrontation. That's not a spiritual gift. But gracious, encouraging exhortation is a spiritual gift. Look at verse 8. You use your gifts, and the one who exhorts in his exhortation. This is another one of those speaking gifts. It literally means 
to call, come alongside someone, to encourage them, to stir them up to actions, to help them move towards godliness, to literally call them out to keep going when life is hard. And sometimes that means you have to help correct issues and help them correct course. So so I hope you get the picture that this same word, to exhort, can also be translated to encourage. And so we ask the question, is your exhortation encouraging? If it isn't, perhaps your exhortations are tainted with an air of judgmentalism or arrogant superiority syndrome. Biblical exhortation should always be encouraging. This speaking gift takes courage and a great deal of empathy for your brothers and sisters. So these people love discipleship relationships. They're often looking to meet up with their brothers and sisters in many different ways and in many different times and want to encourage Christians to, to walk with God faithfully. These are the people who are invested as, as care group leaders, and their presence in care group is always an encouraging presence in the group. Everyone seems to be able to apply God's truth to life better. Faithful encouragers also make the best biblical counselors, as they seem to have a knack to help others apply God's word, confront sin, and to get on the best course. Exhorters aren't always talkers. They're good listeners, good question askers. This is another of those gifts that's really for everyone in some way. Hebrews 3.13 says, exhort one another every day. So aim to be a discipling church. Aim to encourage, exhort one another. Aim to motivate one another to run the race that is set before you. Start today, after the service. Talk about life. Talk about what God's doing. Encouraging each other to be like Christ. Fifth question. How much until I'm a gifted giver? Question number five. How much until I'm a gifted giver? A lot of people with less money than others around them fall into some pretty typical traps. First, they think that it's their right to live like they make about thirty dollars to $40,000 more than they actually do. Second, they assume that giving to God is almost impossible because they're constantly behind and falling into debt. So let me encourage you with a story. A friend of mine who ran a nonprofit ministry, uh, a missionary ministry, told me that one of his most faithful donors over the course of like 25 years worked his whole life as a bus driver. He was a man who worked hard, lived frugally, gave to his church, and still had enough to give generously to another missionary cause, all on a bus driver's salary. Randy Alcorn, in his excellent little book, Managing God's Money, you can tell a lot of what he's about to say in the title, it's not your money, it's God's, reminds us, first of all, that, yeah, all your money is God's, and second, we should manage his money like we're at war. 
voluntarily living in austerity so we can invest our money to have eternal impacts. Think World War II stories where butter and sugar are rationed, where you you stretch everything so that the troops on the front lines can get what they need. And so Randy Alcorn encourages us to do the same. So churches, missionaries, pregnancy centers can, can flourish. Hold back so that you can encourage others with your giving. And so we read, what does he say? Let us use our gifts, middle of verse eight. The one who contributes in generosity. So this is not dependent on your level of wealth, but on a consistent willingness to sacrifice for others, to be generous, sometimes to a fault. Yes, prudence requires that you save. It requires that you think ahead for the good of your family, that you think about retirement. But that can never eclipse the frequently repeated New Testament ethic to give generously. Uh, this afternoon, go, go read Second Corinthians 8 and 9, just the beginnings of each of those chapters. They deal with this generous giving. It's not a, the amount that makes you a gift to giver. The Lord looks at the heart. And guess what? The Lord knows the pictures of your whole financial situation. Frankly, some of you, for a variety of reasons, find it easier to be a generous giver. Take joy in this gift of service. And the rest of us, let's look to grow in our generosity. Question number six. Question number six that will help you use your gifts well I've got zeal to lead. How can I stay humble? I've got zeal to lead. How can I stay humble? My wife often tells me part of the problem with politics is it attracts the wrong type of people to run for office. People who love power and all the bright lights fixated on them are not the people you want serving the public's good. The the right type of people, genuine public servants, often are repulsed by the political machines and don't want anything to do with being a politician. See, a zeal to lead and humility are hard to cultivate together. And yet that's exactly what's going on here in Romans 12. I mean, remember how Paul begins this section in Romans 3. He says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but be sober-minded. He says that right in the heels of calling us to live our lives as a living sacrifice. Stop living for yourself, die to yourself, and live for God's sake. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Realize that you're just part of the body of Christ, he tells us in verse 4 and 5. So if you have gifts, use them for the good of your church family. And that includes the gift of leadership. So he says in verse 8, right? The one who leads with zeal. This is really another one of those service gifts for the good of the body. Every church needs leadership. And godly leadership helps churches thrive. And as a leader in this church, I don't take lightly the immense privilege I have to work with some of the most godly and zealous leaders that I know. I'm grateful for many of you. It is a large and gifted team that helps this church run well for the glory of God. Due in large part to godly, humble zeal. 
You are passionate about serving for the glory of God. You are passionate about being excellent in whatever you do. And we still need more leaders to step up and serve and lead with zeal and humility. You see, zeal, a passion for leading and rethinking how to, to, to better do, create the wheel, so to speak, when coupled with humble godliness, is a massive blessing to your church. But how can we stay humble and zealous as leaders? We'll start by keeping the glory of God at the forefront of your goals. Those who are truly godly understand that your highest delight, your greatest satisfaction in life doesn't come when when you get what you want, but when you're satisfied in the glory of God. When you live and zealously lead for him. Secondly, as a church, we make a practice of regularly confessing sins. We have a a prayer every week where we publicly confess sins. In our care groups, we regularly confess our sins to each other because we know that before God, we all are sinners, standing guilty and condemned without Christ. That we are who we are, Christian, because we've been forgiven because we've been adopted into God's eternal family, that we've been gifted to to serve one another, all because of God's gospel love to give us Jesus. And so we also stay humble by keeping the gospel work of Jesus in mind. We don't just confess sins and think, oh, I'm so terrible, what a worm I am. We confess sins and think how great God is to forgive us of these sins. We think about the gospel daily. We pray through the gospel daily. And we also proclaim the gospel publicly as we take the Lord's Supper, where we remember the work of Christ how he took on flesh to live a perfect life that we couldn't live, how he bore God's wrath for our sins, how he died as a substitute in our place, how he rose again from the dead in order to credit us with his righteousness, to to purchase us, a people, for himself so that we could be eternally adopted into his family. We remember that we believe in Jesus and in his cross work because God gave us eyes to see. You didn't figure this out because you're smart. You figured this out because God did a work in your heart. He gave you ears to hear and faith to believe. The gospel keeps even the most zealous leader humble. There's a final question that will help us use our gifts well. Number seven, who can happily be wronged? Seriously, is this possible? Can you happily be wronged? I mean, isn't sin always painful? Isn't being sinned against a cause for division, bitterness, and resentment? I mean, even in the church, our struggles with sin can be messy, and many Christians struggle massively to show mercy to each other. Even so, our final spiritual gift is very simply, what did you say at the end of verse eight? The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Remember, mercy is withholding judgment and helping struggling Christians. This is one of those serving acts. Even as struggling Christians often lash out in sin, even towards brothers and sisters who are trying to 
help them. I mean, what teenager doesn't lash out at their parents on occasion when they're trying to help them, right? It's the same thing we do with one another, sadly. And the one who shows mercy goes a long way to love others, even happily enduring with different people and difficult people, if only for the ongoing chance to encourage the faint-hearted. There's a reason why some of the shortest tenured careers are social workers and pastors. Both of those professions have to work through difficult, often systemic life problems with people, and change is slow and hard. These jobs require the gift of mercy to be carried out with cheerfulness. Thankfully, God doesn't just gift pastors with mercy, but many of you are incredibly merciful. You've happily endured my shortcomings as a pastor for well over a decade now, and I thank you. And as I see you help care for each other, it's often with cheerful, warm-hearted mercy for the weak. So pray that you can grow in this gift too. Be the person that others come to when they need help, when they need counsel, wisdom, or, or simply to cry. Then work to continue that gift of mercy with encouraging exhortation. After the last few weeks of thinking about spiritual gifts, my prayer for our church family is that we will pursue, pursue, pursue one another for the glory of God. That we will see our giftings not just as a way to find self-fulfillment, but to build up Christ's body. As we close, I want you to jot one or two gifts you think you should pursue more in your church family and tell someone about it. Spend a minute. Young people, teenagers, do the same. Elementary school kids, do the same. Think about this. Think about where you need to grow in your giftedness and aim to grow. There's a sermon that can't simply end with knowing more truth without changing how you live. This is it. So jot down something and talk. Because you're all gifted. He gives each one a gift according to what he chooses to give. So let's use them. New church family. Well, central to helping us know who is part of our church family and, and who to serve and, and what it looks like to faithfully walk with one another and even remembering the gospel is set before us in the Lord's Supper where we are able to celebrate as Christians what Christ has done. I often talk about the, the five looks to help us prepare for the glories of communion just as a way to keep our minds focused on what's happening at the table. First of all, we look back at the cross work of Jesus Christ. We look back at Jesus who shed his blood on your behalf. He died instead of you. The Lord poured out his wrath on God the Son so that he wouldn't pour out his wrath on you so that you could be forgiven and cleansed and declared right. So we look back at that marvelous work that Christ did on the cross. 
We also look up because in, when we take communion, we remember that we have instant access to God, something we don't see in the Old Testament. But we today have direct, instant, full access to God. We are to pray regularly, consistently, faithfully to walk closer with God. So we look up, remembering that we can get to God. But this feast is also a time of introspection too, where we look within. Because we realize that what we're doing as we take the Lord's Supper needs to be done in a manner worthy of what God calls us to do. To live holy God-exalting lives. And so this is a time where we need to confess sin, we confess sin and get right with God and get right with others. But this is also a time where we look around as we who are the many partake of the one body, we celebrate how God has brought us together as a family and how he plans to use our gifts for his glory. And finally, we look, we look forward as we anticipate that great day when Jesus returns. And so we rejoice, we, we celebrate the goodness of God, and we are motivated to serve him as a living sacrifice as we remember his sacrifice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a chance to take the Lord's Supper. We thank you that we've been able to think about uh, the spiritual gifts a little bit more deeply this morning and about how we could use your gifting that you've given to us well in this church family. Help us, Lord, to be faithful Christians. Help us to be faithfully a part of our church. Help us to be faithful to serve well. Lord, and we confess that this is a time now where we are humbled as we remember what your work has accomplished for us. We are who we are because of your grace. We walk where we walk because of the grace and strength that you provide. And so even as we remember your death and your resurrection in the Lord's Supper, we remember with great humility and a great sense of gratitude. Lord, we pray that you would be honored through our taking of this supper and that we would do so in a way which brings you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.